James chapter 5, verse 1. Go to now, you rich men. Weep and howl for your miseries that shall come upon you. Your riches are corrupted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver is cankered or rusted. And the rust of them shall be a witness against you and shall eat your flesh as it were fire. You have heaped treasure together for the last days. Behold the hire of the laborers who have reaped down your fields, which is of you kept back by fraud, crieth. And the cries of them have re- that which have reaped have entered into the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth, or the Lord of hosts. You have lived in pleasure on the earth. You have been wanton. You have nourished your hearts as in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and killed the just, and he does not resist you. The author, James, who was the half-brother of Jesus Christ, is writing a letter to a group of primarily Jewish Christians. You recall at the very opening of the letter, he addressed them as the 12 tribes that were scattered abroad. Many of the Jews had had fled Jerusalem because of the persecution against Christians that had risen up by the time James was written. And many of them that had been displaced because of that persecution were wondering why they were going through the sufferings that they were experiencing. Why the trials? Why the difficulty? And because of the difficulty, many of them had grown distant from the Lord and become lukewarm or cool in their faith or in their their walk, their Christian life. And the result of that lukewarmness in these Christians is that there was a sin that was creeping into them, a sense of worldliness. There was conflict that was rising up between themselves. They were fighting amongst themselves. There was confusion in their own minds and hearts, and they had lost a clarity for their purpose and their reason for being alive, and many of them were frustrated. And so James takes it in hand to write to them in order to give light or or wisdom concerning the difficulties and the trials, and also then to give them some instruction concerning the place where they were at in their lives, in their Christian experience. And so the final three chapters of James present to us essentially uh, three different contrasts that James kind of holds up before us, and, and in a sense he gives us a choice. In chapter three, he showed us two different types of wisdom, that there's a worldly wisdom that comes from the world, and then there's a godly wisdom, a wisdom that comes from heaven. And he tells us that those two wisdoms are going to have two very different outcomes in our life depending on which one that we follow and which one that we seek after. In chapter 4, he gave us a contrast of two different positions wherein we can set our lives. We can set our lives in, in a submission to ourselves, governing our own way and going and living after our own lusts, or we can live our lives in submission to God and we can throw ourselves upon his sovereignty and upon his goodness and upon his will for us. And we can walk in what he has for our lives. And again, as he lays out that contrast, he shows to us that those choices are going to have two very different outcomes for us. If we choose to live the self-governed life, or if we choose to live the Christ-centered and submitted life, that there's going to be two very different pictures of life that come out on the other side. And as we come into chapter 5, he holds before us yet one more contrast 
as he closes out or gets ready to close. And that is the contrast between two different treasures or two different pursuits. One being the treasures and the riches that this world can give and the other being the treasures and the riches that await for us from God and his timing. And so he begins his address now talking to uh, rich men. And I love the way that he begins in verse 1. He just says, go to, and then he catches himself, and he realizes that he's speaking to a group of Christians and that he can't use the word that he wants to use next, so he just skips it. He says, go to, he doesn't say where, and then he says, rich men, and, and, and weep and howl for the miseries that will come upon you. And he begins now talking to rich men. Now, he's not talking to rich Christians, but rather he's talking to the dishonest rich people of the world. Now, how do we know that? Two reasons. First of all, the word that is used most throughout the book of James is the word brethren. And every time James is addressing the Christian or the, the audience of his epistle or the intended audience, he uses that word. He says brethren or beloved brethren or brethren beloved. And he con- con- consistently addresses them. When he comes down to verse 7 of chapter 5, where we'll end up in just a few moments, he turns the attention back to the Christian and he says, therefore, brethren. And so the audience that he's addressing in the first six verses here is not the brethren or the Christians, but rather the rich of the world. The other reason that we know he's not talking to the Christian is because he speaks to these rich men in very certain terms as those that are condemned or those that are lost, those that are under the judgment of God. And that wouldn't be true for someone who's put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So he's speaking to the rich men of the world, the one percenters, those that we would call the elite, those that control the vast majority of the wealth of the world, and James talked to them. So the question is, why in the world, in the middle of this letter that's written to Christians, would James have a subsection that's addressed to the wealthy men of the world, the rich condemned people? Now, the reason for that is not primarily to send a message to them, but rather that God's people would overhear the message that's being given to them and the condemnation that's given to them and that the Christians then would gain perspective for themselves concerning, first of all, the pursuit of worldly wealth and then second of all, the end of those that have made that their chief passion. And so James, in a sense, brings us into the future and lets us see the condemnation of the worldly wealthy Christless soul, and he lets us hear and see the mind of God for them so that we might gain perspective in our own lives. Now, why, the next question is, does James feel that this is important for the Christian church to hear this and to understand this? And the reason is this, because it's true today, and it always has been true since the fall of man, that the primary pursuit of the world system is the uh, um, attaining and the amassing and the hoarding of wealth. Now, you don't have to look very far or even evaluate too long to realize the truth of that statement. If you go uh, to, to a bookstore today or, or, or you know, 
any place where people, um, you know, read or, or attain education or knowledge, you'll realize that very high on the priority list of, of the things that are taught, the things that are bought, the things that are read and studied and, and sought after is, is, is the end of gaining wealth, of having uh, and, and obtaining riches. The top 10 bestsellers. How about the top 10 television shows that people watch? Things that have to do with amassing wealth. Flipping, buying and selling houses or things. Things like Shark Tank where people, uh, you know, pitch their ideas and try to gain investors. And, and the reason there's a draw to that is because it, it has to do with the pursuit of wealth and making money. We live in a world where almost everything is measured in dollars and in cents. We ask questions like, well, how much did that cost? How much is that worth? How much do they make? How much does that profession pay? What kind of a neighborhood is that? What are the taxes like? And somewhere at the foundation of almost everything that we do, not just in our country, but in our world, is this current or this flow, this tide that constantly shouts at us, amass wealth, obtain, gain, somehow get your hands upon money. I think it's interesting when you look at the, the history of the United States of America, throughout the various segments of U.S. history, the things that have been the priority, by and large, in the lives of the citizens. At the very beginning, when the pilgrims first came over and in that, those first couple of decades and generation of, uh, 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 of time when we were in this land, the, the main thrust that drove the hearts and lives of the citizens was that of just survival of where are we going to get our next meal? Or we hope we can make it through the winter. Or we hope that more of us are alive on the other side of winter than, than that just go into it. Because oftentimes at the beginning, that wasn't the case. And the thrust was just to survive. But after a generation or two, it became pretty well established that survival was obtained. We're going to survive. We're going to make it. And at that point, the main thrust changed from survival to now expansion to taking more territory, to exploring exploring the fruited plains and seeing what's between sea and shining sea and just the expansion of land. And that became the pursuit to just explore and to discover and see this new world that we've been led into. But once after several generations, the expansion had been complete, then the thrust changed again and then the thrust became development. Is that now that we've got this land and we've marked out our territories, now what can we do with it? And so land was cleared and farms were established and soon cities and towns and villages were established and development took place. And then the birth of industry came along and factories were raised up and there was just a a, a move towards developing the land. But then slowly as things developed and then continued, the shift in the culture, move from a drive towards development to where it is now, the thrust is get wealthy. Just do whatever you can. However you can make it cheaper, make it faster, make it in in a way wherein the profit margins grow and the prices can come down. Do what you can, just get rich at whatever cost, whatever means, that's the, the morality. That's the justification. That's what we go after in the United States of America today, to go after wealth. And though we are Christians, it is very real and very possible that we can get pulled into that same mindset and that same current of the world, where on one hand we say, yes, I'm saved and I'm going to heaven, 
But on the other hand, I've made the master passion of my life, or at least a master passion of my life, a pursuit of wealth. I've made that a goal within my heart and within my life. And James feels it necessary to show us the end of where that path leads, leads that we might understand and make right decisions concerning the things that we give our lives to. So the question is, is it a sin then for a Christian to be wealthy or for a Christian to have money or for a Christian to make money? And the answer to that question is a resounding no, absolutely not. There's nothing wrong with that. The Bible teaches us that it's God that gives us the ability to get wealth. That God sometimes, the Bible shows us, that he even prospers his own people according as uh, we are able to handle it. The Bible says that he doesn't withhold good from us and that he doesn't withhold these treasures from us, but he gives, that he's a giving God and that he blesses. But he blesses according to our ability to handle that blessing. And he also prospers us according to the reason why we seek his prosperity or the motive behind why we want to gain those things, and also the method whereby we obtain the riches or the wealth or the money that we have. God is not looking to bless people just for the sake of allowing that person to live a luxurious and bountiful life. The Bible says that God has given us richly all things to enjoy. He's not against the enjoyment of our enjoyment or the way that we enjoy the things that he has given to us or the prosperity that we have. But that's not his purpose in prospering our lives. God's not looking for cisterns wherein he can find people that will hoard and keep and obtain and grow their wealth constantly but rather he's looking for people that will distribute resources as he then flows it into and then through their lives. And when God finds someone that has a genuine gift of giving, and when God finds someone that's willing to distribute, God will oftentimes bless and prosper that person because the motive behind their desire to obtain is in the right place. We read in Proverbs chapter 11, Verses 24 and 25, Solomon says, there is, the idea is a person, that scatters and yet increases. And there is that which withholdeth more than is meet or necessary, but it tendeth to poverty. The liberal soul shall be made fat, and he that waters shall be watered also himself. And when God finds a vessel, a channel that he can flow through for the good of others, God will do more and abundantly for that person than they would ever think or hope or expect. And so God very definitely prospers, but the motive behind it is important. The other thing that's important to God is the method whereby riches or wealth is obtained. There is a vast difference between wealth that comes from the hand of God and wealth that comes at the hand or from the mind of men. We read in the Bible men like Abraham, men like Jacob, men like Daniel, others throughout, the family of David, the family of Boaz, the line of the kings. There are many that God has prospered throughout uh, his generations. But yet when you look at the way in which that prosperity came, it's indisputable that it came at the hand of God. 
Abraham was much increased with his flocks and his herds. He was a shepherd and it was God that prospered him and caused his flocks to be fruitful. We read of Isaac in the book of Genesis and it tells us that Isaac sowed in the land that year and that he reaped a hundredfold from what he sowed. That's prosperity. Can you imagine a hundred percent, you know, uh, return or more on what you've sown? But that's at the hand of God. Only God can bring that to pass and bring that to bear upon the life. And when God brings forth according to the sowing and reaping and the harvesting of righteousness, there's a blessing. The Bible says again in the Proverbs that the blessing of the Lord that maketh rich. But in the hand of fools, you know, and then he goes on and describes another picture. There's another wealth that comes not from the hand of God, but is obtained from the mind of men. Wealth that is obtained by fraud. Wealth that's obtained by exploitation. Wealth that's obtained by dishonest means. And when God sees that kind of wealth, he has a completely different mind for it. He says, I didn't do that, and I don't condone that. That wealth isn't from me. And so God addresses the wealthy rich men of the world that are wealthy from the dishonest means of man's uh, ingenuity. And here's what God has to say in these verses concerning these rich men. The first thing that he tells us right there in verse 1 is he tells us that they are miserable people. That they're miserable not only in the present tense, but what awaits them in their future is also nothing but misery. Now, I don't know if you have lived long enough on this world and observed life long enough to realize that wealth and riches do not make human beings happy. Did you know that? That money and wealth and possessions do not satisfy the soul of man. And and, and the reason, some of the time, why rich people uh, live in the misery that they live in is because they're experiencing the fruit of their disillusionment. They realize what it has taken them and what it is that they have given themselves to in order to obtain what they have. And then they come to the place where they've obtained all and more than they ever ever hoped and dreamed and they realize that it isn't what they thought it would be. That it didn't make them happy in the way that they thought that it would. Have you ever come to the end of a very long and arduous journey in your own experience or in your life And had the destination not be what you hoped it would be or what you had expected when you first set out. I know that I have. I remember just past uh, this past summer, my son Rocky and I, um, I think I shared with you a few months ago, we climbed Mount Marcy in the Adirondacks, the highest peak in New York State. And we planned the trip and, uh, you know, we got ready and we took a couple of days and we packed our backpacks and we hiked, you know, eight hours, you know, through and, and camped overnight. I mean, it, and it was arduous. It was difficult. It was blessed. It was glorious, you know. And then the next morning, our plan was to wake up early and then hike up to the peak and then spend some time up there and then hike down and drive home on the second day. So we kept the plan. Everything was working out great. We wake up early, it's freezing cold, even though it's midsummer because we're at this high elevation, 5,000 feet. I know for New York State, that's, and it's not really high, but it's, you know, high for us, you know. And, and we wake up and it's freezing cold and we dress in layers and we're walking up, climbing up, peeling layers as we go. And we hit a certain altitude mark and we walked into a cloud. And we reached the pinnacle, we could barely see our hand in front of our face. 
You know, and, and so the expectation of our journey is that we're going to see more of New York in one moment than we'd ever seen before. And it certainly wasn't what we expected. The wool was pulled over our eyes. We couldn't see anything at all while we were up there. And we waited it out for like an hour and the ranger said, hey, you guys just got one of those days. You know, you're, you're, it's probably just not going to clear up today. And the end of our journey was just not what we expected. We thought there would be clarity. We thought there would be majesty. We thought it would be breathtakingly awesome to be on the top. But once we got there, we found that we were in a fog. And there have been many rich people over the course of human history and over human existence that have made that arduous climb, not just a couple of days, but they have given their life. They have made the attaining of wealth the master passion of their life. And after all that they've had to do to get where they set out to go, they reached the top and what they thought would be majesty and clarity and freedom and the ability to see beyond anything that they could before, they found that there's nothing there but a fog. And the result of it is misery that then comes upon the life. He then goes on to talk about, in verses uh, 2 and 3, some attributes of the riches themselves. Why is it that riches don't satisfy? Why is it that the thing that 99.9% of the population is seeking after doesn't yield the return that it promises? Why don't riches satisfy? He says, first of all, concerning the riches in verse 2, he says that your riches are corrupted. The idea behind corrupted riches is that they are no longer of um, of, of pure value. That is, that there's something that's happened to those riches that you have that have contaminated their value. They've been watered down. They've been inflated in such a way wherein now what once held a certain value for no other reason other than time and nature that has come to bear upon it, it no longer is worth what it once was. If you have some lump of pure gold in your hand, that gold carries a consistent weight of value. But if that gold becomes corrupted, that is, if there's some other material that is introduced into that mass of gold that maybe makes it look bigger, but that doesn't carry the same purity, then that wealth has now become corrupted. And that is one of the things that happens to earthly riches. It loses its value due to contamination. Many of us in the last 10 years of, of life in the United States of America, we've seen that happen firsthand. How many people that went through the financial crisis back in 2008 saw the corruption of their wealth? They went to bed on a particular night and their their portfolio or their account or their retirement or their future was looking a certain way. We're worth this much. We've got this much saved up. We're going to be in this place in this many years. And they went to bed and all of that was true. But when they woke up the next morning, all of it was vastly different. And many people that had much on one day woke up the next morning and had absolutely nothing. And that's one of the problems with worldly wealth is that it has the ability to be corrupted. It can be here today and then it can be gone tomorrow. And there can be no announcement. It cannot last. The second thing he says concerning the riches and why they don't satisfy is that he says that your garments have become moth-eaten. Now, for garments in the context of riches 
to become moth-eaten, one of two things has to be true. Number one is that you have so many clothes in your closet that you don't have time to wear them all and the moths have overcome your ability to keep the moths off the clothes and thus the clothes have become moth-eaten. Just an indictment on how much you have that's just sitting there waiting to be worn. Or the other reason why the clothes are moth-eaten, and this is more likely the case as it concerns the human condition, is it isn't because I have so many, though I probably do. It's because I'm not wearing that anymore. You know, that was good once. I remember when I got it, I loved it. I remember it was the most beautiful possession I had. But now, it's out of style, it's out of flavor, it doesn't fit. I ain't wearing that anymore. And the idea behind that is that this thing that once did satisfy no longer has the ability to satisfy me. I'm not satisfied with that anymore. And that's true concerning anything, any treasure, any bit of wealth or possession that we have in this world is that that thing that at once did satisfy eventually will come to a place where it does not satisfy any longer. And every single one of us in here knows exactly what that feels like. The third thing that he says concerning wealth, uh, the treasures themselves and why they don't satisfy is in verse 3. He says that your gold and your silver is cankered or rusted and the rest of them shall be a witness against you. The third reason is because the gold and the silver have become rusted. Now, the reason why gold and silver is rusted is either, number one, is that it has been sitting idle for so long that something that cannot rust has finally rusted. And he's saying that you have so much that you don't even know what to do with it that's just sitting there. It's doing absolutely nothing. But the greater reason why gold and silver rust is because they're not really gold and silver. Because gold and silver cannot rust. That's why we call them precious metals. Because they're lasting. And so for gold and silver to be rusted, meaning that the very wool has been pulled over the eyes of those that have obtained it, and that the thing that they have isn't even what they think they have, but it's just a shadow or a lie concerning the whole thing. And so he concludes this analysis of these riches by saying that the rust of these things is going to testify against you. And so James brings to us now three things that will testify against the ungodly rich in the last day. The first thing that will testify is the rust itself. That when the unsaved rich stand before God in heaven, they're going to sit on the defense stand and God is going to call the rust of their wealth to come and testify against them. And the testimony that that rust is going to bear against those rich men is that they had given their lives and the abundance of their strength and their value to that which cannot maintain its value, to that which cannot bring lasting satisfaction, and to that which will ultimately prove to not be what it appeared to be. In a sense, the testimony that that rust will make against that man or that woman is that they completely wasted their life in pursuing something that brought them a net nothing at the end of it all. The second thing that James tells us that will testify against the rich men in those days is the wages that were kept back 
from the laborers. In verse 4, he says, Behold the hire or the wages of the laborers who have reaped down your fields, which has been kept back by you by fraud, crieth. In other words, the second witness that God calls to the stand is the wages themselves. And essentially, the question that God is going to ask those wages that will testify against these rich men is he's going to just simply say, what in the world were you doing in his bank account when they don't belong to you, when you didn't belong to him? And the wages will say, I don't know how I got there because he certainly didn't do anything to earn me. But somehow I ended up in his bank account and not in the bank account of the person who rightfully bestowed the labor upon where these wages came from. And God says that those wages will testify. And then the third thing that will testify is the workers who deserved those wages themselves. He says, and the cries of them which have reaped are entered into the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth, or the Lord of hosts, always use the word Lord of hosts to, to, to speak of God in the context of his strength and of his might. And when God is coming at you as the Lord of hosts, you don't want to be on the other side of that because uh, it's not a safe place to be. But essentially the cry of the workers. Amazing thing to consider that every time God hears a wearied workman sitting on the edge of his bed frustrated at night for all that he puts out and for the little return that he gets for all that he put out, Every time a person utters the words, another day, another dollar, and that bears a groan under the weight of worldly oppression, trying to just get by and breaking their backs to do it, the groans of those cries come into the ears of God and they're stored up as a witness against those that are exploiting them uh, to, to, to earn them. So what is God's sentence? upon the ungodly rich of the world. What does God have to say to them in, in his final analysis concerning them, these one percenters uh, that, that have no interest in the things of God? He says to them in conclusion, or by way of his conclusion, we're not concluding quite yet, don't get excited. <laughs> but God says in conclusion to them, first of all, he says, you have, and this is uh, spoken back up in verse um Three at the end, he says, you have heaped treasure together for the last days. And that word heaped up, it's an interesting word. It's actually where we get the English word thesaurus. You know what a thesaurus is? It's a thesaurus is where you take a single word and then you say it a thousand different ways. You know, and it's kind of the, the preacher's best friend. You know, how can I say this in another? I need a P word that really says this, you know, or something like that. But the idea is that it's all the same thing, but you've got a lot of it. And, the, and the, the, the spirit behind the word that's used there is what God is saying when he says, you have heaped up treasures for the last days. He's saying that you have made the accumulation of wealth the master passion of your life. That's the analysis that God brings upon them. He says, you have made the accumulation of wealth the master passion of your life. He says secondarily to them, down, uh, it's in verse 5. He says, you have lived in pleasure on the earth and yet you have been wanton or that you have lacked. In other words, God is going to hold them accountable to the fact that they have attained that which the entire world is seeking after and that in attaining that, they realized it was completely empty and yet they did nothing about it. 
They had the opportunity to realize that the thing that they had chased after could not ultimately satisfy. And then they had the opportunity to use that knowledge to the embitterment of man, to say, hey, we've been chasing after the wrong thing because it doesn't ultimately do anything. But rather than doing that, God's indictment upon the rich is that you buried that feeling and that knowledge underneath your covetousness and you continued pursuing wealth at the expense of those whom you were defrauding and you said nothing about it. You have lived in pleasure upon the earth and you have been wanton. He says thirdly concerning them, he says you have nourished your hearts as in the day of slaughter. And this is a heavy indictment that God lays upon the rich because here's what God is saying. He's saying that it's that your life and the testimony of your life, unsaved rich person, is that what you have done is the equivalent of a person who is in a building where there's a slaughter taking place, much like we hear about often in the days that we live in, that there's been another mass shooting in a nightclub or in a school or in a business. And it was in that place where you were in a place where there was a slaughter that was happening all around you, and yet because it was an inconvenience or an interruption upon your pursuit of wealth, you put earplugs in, you shut the door, and you said, excuse me, I'm having my lunch. And my lunchtime is not worthy of being interrupted by what's going on outside in the hallways or in the other rooms of this building. He's saying you have insulated yourself from the pain and the suffering that the rest of the world is feeling, that in my eyes and ears, God says, is the equivalent of slaughter. And instead of doing something about it, you have given yourself to nourishing your own hearts. You have lived completely for yourself in the midst of a world that needed much help. And then finally, the fourth conclusion that God will condemn them with is he says that you have condemned and killed the just when they have not resisted you. The idea behind the rich condemning the just is that they had the rich person had made the analysis about the poor person that that person is useless and expendable. That the rich person looked at the poor person and their attitude towards them is that that person is nothing but a pawn in this world whose existence serves to make me richer or to better my position on things. You have judged them to be worthless and you've burned them out. You've literally killed their spirit. You've taken and extracted every bit of labor and extraction that you can get from them and now you've left them to be nothing but the, uh, a hollow shell of what they could be or of what they uh, were designed to be by me. You have condemned and killed the just and yet that person has done nothing to you to deserve that type of treatment. And this is what God... Now, this, now I wouldn't want to be... <laughs> I don't want to be in the 1% on that day when God brings this to bear upon the unsaved rich. Now, why does God set this forth in his word for the believer, for you and I to hear it in such strong terms and in such a strong way? Because the exhortation or the instruction that God gives to the Christian all the way from Genesis to Revelation is that this is not our home. And that to pursue earthly wealth and earthly riches or an earthly estate here is a complete waste of our lives and the opportunity that we have here. 
The Bible is very clear in speaking to the son and daughter of God that we are not to be envious of the rich and prospered person. In Proverbs chapter 23, Solomon, who himself was rich, spoke these words. He said, when you sit to eat with a ruler, consider diligently what is before you. And put a knife to your throat if you be a man who's given to appetite. Now, I used to think, I, I literally used to just take that at, at the face value that it was and think, okay, if you're sitting in, at a dinner and there's someone at the dinner who's of a higher position of you in life, don't eat that much. You know, I, I mean, I'm, I'm naive. You know, I'm not the smartest, sharpest knife in the drawer. That's not the context of what he's saying here. What he's saying is that when you sit down in the presence of a rich man, or if you're invited by some stroke of of miraculous providence to sit in the presence of a a wealthy man or a ruler or someone who who just has the abundant life, as we would call it here on earth, or or eats with silver spoons, the, the writer here is saying this. He's saying just you're better off putting a knife to your throat if you're a man who's given to appetite. Here's why. He says, be not desirous of his dainties, for they are deceitful meat. That you can sit there in the presence of that rich person, and you can see what they've got in their garage, and you can see what they've got hanging on the wall, and the plasma, and the, you know, the size of the thing, or the projector, or the seat that they're sitting in that shakes when the, you know, the sound of the movie goes off, and you can see the size of the rooms, and the cleanliness of it all, and the servants that are there, and you can see the kind of life that they live, and how they, they just spend money like it's going out of style, and every day UPS is dropping off seven more packages from Amazon, and you know, you can look around at that, and you could just, you can, you can begin to, in your own heart as a Christian, you begin to think, I want that. I want to know what it's like to live that kind of a life. And what the writer is saying to us here very clearly is he's saying, don't be deceived. It's not what it promises to be. And it's not what you think it is. He says it's deceitful meat. It's a lie. It's a facade. It's a deceptive wrapper of the true reality of what's going on inside the heart of that person. He applies it, the the wise man does in verse 4, by saying, labor not to be rich. Don't give the strength and the abundance of what you have in your life for the end of pursuing and obtaining riches. Time and duty are way more valuable than money. And yet how how many of us have been deceived into trading our time And what we do with our lives for nothing more than paper or fleeting wealth that can't last and can't satisfy. The Bible says that we have been put on this earth for God's purpose. He has placed gifts and talents inside of us. He's put dreams and destiny and ability. He has laid things out for every one of us. And he's given us a life that he calls the abundant life. And far too many Christians have sold short the things that God has put in our hearts and in our minds to do because of a pursuit of money. What's my dream? What do I feel like God's made me to do? Well, it's there, but I'll never realize it because I have to pay the bills, because I have to pay for the packages. He says, listen, labor not to be rich. Cease from thine own wisdom. Will you set your eyes upon that which is not? For riches certainly make themselves wings. They fly away as an eagle toward heaven. Anybody say amen to that? 
Eat thou not the bread of him that has an evil eye, neither desire thou his dainty meats. For as he thinks in his heart, so is he. Eat and drink, saith he to thee, but his heart is not with you. The morsel which you have eaten shall you vomit up and lose thy sweet words. Listen, if you give yourself to a pursuit of wealth and you make that the master passion of your life, mark God's words. You will come to a point where you will say, I wasted it. I wasted it. I spent my life and it was a complete waste because I'm at the end of it. And even if I obtained the thing that I sought after, the net result of my life is zero. The Apostle Paul wrote to his young son Timothy in, in, in 1 Timothy chapter 6, and he says this in verse 9. He says, But they that will be rich, that is, they have a desire to pursue after earthly riches, they that will be rich fall into temptation and a snare. It's a trap. You're bringing yourself into unnecessary trials. As Bobby would say, as he says on a weekly basis, you're making problems for yourself, you know. And that's the idea. You're, 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 you're going to fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and hurtful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. The Bible says in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 31, it says, they that wait upon the Lord will renew their strength, that they will mount up with wings like eagles. They'll walk and not be weary. They'll run and not faint. And God's desire for every one of our lives is that we be uplifted, that we come to a place in our lives where we're no longer flapping and striving and trying to stay afloat in our world, but rather the breath of God is carrying us and we're soaring. You ever seen an eagle flapping? Maybe once or twice. Eagles don't flap, they soar. And God's will for his kids is that we soar, is that we're carried by his breath, his glory, his ruach, that that's what rules our lives. That's the source and the outcome of all. It comes from God. But if we make wealth the master passion and the pursuit of it, then we put ourselves in a place where we're not only not soaring, but we're drowning ourselves in destruction and in perdition. Jesus said, and it's the saddest place a Christian can come into, that there's a spectrum in this vast thing of Christianity of, of believers, people that have put their faith in God, but they've allowed the word of God and the purpose of God in their lives to become choked by the thorns of this life. Jesus said that the thorns are the cares of this world, the desire for riches and the lusts for other things. And what Paul is saying to Timothy here is, listen, Timothy, don't set your affection on the treasures of this world because they're going to choke you out. And they're going to take a life that otherwise would have been fruitful and that would have done great things and they'll make it nothing. Which drown men in destruction and perdition for the love of money, not money, but the love of money. Money is an excellent servant. It's a horrible master. The love of money is the root of all evil, which while some coveted after, they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. The men of Shechem came to Jacob and they said, we will circumcise ourselves and our sons. And you can marry our daughters and we'll marry yours and we'll mix up only, they said, we'll trade with you. And we'll gain your cattle. 
and will obtain your wealth. They desired the riches. And boy, they were pierced through. Read the story. (laughs) They didn't have a good go of it. Read about the men of Shechem in Genesis. We read about Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, one of the greatest prophets of the Old Testament. He was to Elisha what Elisha was to Elijah. He was in line to be used of God greatly. But when Naaman came, the Syrian, and offered silver and garments and Babylonian treasure to Naaman because of the healing of the leprosy, Elisha said, no, let your treasure go with you. I don't want anything. Is this a time to receive gifts? You can't purchase the gifts of God, the things of God. But Gehazi coveted after the silver and the garments of Naaman. So he went after him secretly. And he said, hey, by the way, Elisha changed his mind. He will take a wedge of gold and hand over some of those clothes for the men. He erred from the faith. He no sooner returned, but Elisha looked at Gehazi and he said, Gehazi, where did you go? He said, oh, I've been here the whole time. Elisha said, went not my spirit with you when you chased after the men? Is this a time that we should be receiving gifts? He said, Gehazi, the leprosy that clung to Naaman be on you. Disqualified. A man that had a call of God. A man that had high privilege in his life. Because of coveting after gold and silver, he tarnished the testimony of God in his pursuit of earthly treasures and his life became a net zero. I think of Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, in all of human history holding one of the highest potential positions that a man can hold to be called by the Son of God himself. And yet it tells us he was a thief, that he kept the bag, and that he loved money. And he was willing to betray the Son of God for 30 measly pieces of silver. A man who was a slave to money. And he went out and hanged himself. His destiny was destitute because of his love of money. I think of Simon the sorcerer, a man graced in the presence of Peter. Peter came to Samaria and he preached the gospel to the Samaritan people. And it says that many in that village believed in Simon, who had been a psychic, that he believed also. God having mercy upon a demon-possessed man. And yet when he saw Peter lay hands on the disciples and the Holy Ghost came upon them, he came to Peter privately and he said, Hey, how much would it cost me to get you to teach me how to do what you just did to those men in there? And Peter said, Thy money perish with thee. I perceive that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. For you shall be in darkness, not seeing the sun for a season. And immediately... A man who used to be able to see the supernatural now can't even see his hand waving in front of his face. The love of money is the root of all evil, which while some Christian godly potential having coveted after have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. Listen, God says, don't labor to be rich. It's a waste of life. It's a waste of life. Jesus said, lay not up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up treasures for yourselves in heaven where moth and rust can't corrupt and where thieves can't break in and steal. You have the two laid out before you. The choice is there. You can live and sow in this world and reap its fleeting benefits for a season and come to the end with nothing. Or you can cast yourself upon the mercy of God. Put yourself in the way of God. Take what he gives with thanksgiving. And at the end of it, receive a kingdom and glory 
which will never fade away, and a crown of life that no one can corrupt. The choice is laid out. Don't envy to be rich. So what's James' application now as he turns it to the Christian? Verse 7. He says, Be patient, therefore, brethren, unto the coming of the Lord. Be patient. This isn't our home. This isn't the place that we've been made for. We're headed for a kingdom that has foundations. Abraham, though he was a man of earthly wealth, his life was characterized by a tent and an altar. The tent being his relationship with this world and the altar signifying his relationship with that which is to come. He refused to build a home and have a dwelling place here. He called himself a pilgrim and a stranger. Be patient, therefore, brethren, unto the coming of the Lord. That's our treasure. That's our reward. Behold, the husbandman or the gardener waits for the precious fruit of the earth and has long patience for it until he received the early and the latter rain. Be ye patient also. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord draws nigh. Make a decision is what James is saying. That you're not going to make wealth the passion or master passion of your life here on earth, but rather establish yourself that I'm going to be content with what God gives and I'm going to live my life for Him and for His glory. He says, Grudge not against one another, brethren, lest you be condemned. Behold, the judge stands before the door. Be at peace amongst yourselves. Don't compromise the work of God for the sake of your complaint or for your right or what you want. Because you risk tarnishing the witness of God. You risk diminishing your treasure when you come into his kingdom. And you tarnish the testimony that you're bringing. Because the Bible says that by this shall all men know that you're my disciples. By your love one for another. So be patient until the coming of the Lord. Then he says in verse 10 as a way of encouragement. He says, take my brethren the prophets who have spoken in the name of the Lord as an example of suffering affliction and of patience. Behold, we count them happy which endure. You have heard of the patience of Job and have seen the end of the Lord, that the Lord is very pitiful and of tender mercy. He's saying, listen, take the prophets as an example of this whole concept of suffering and affliction and waiting patiently in spite of the poverty that you're feeling. He's saying, listen, you have seen through the suffering of Job the things that, <clears throat> the things that uh, um, God does for those that endure and those that wait. And understand this, Christian, that there's a segment of every one of our walk and our path in, in this life that is going to be accompanied by nothing but suffering. There's a valley of temptation that we must face, that we must go through. But notice what he says, and it's where we conclude. He says, but you have seen the end of the Lord. And that's the biggest phrase, the largest statement in this entire chapter. Listen, when's the last time you looked to the end of the road that you're on? What is it that you're pursuing in your life? What is the master passion of your life? Where does that road end when you get there? If you make God the master passion of your life, then the end of that life is a life that's lived in heaven, in glory. The end of it 
is glorious. In Psalm chapter 73, remember the number. It was written by Asaph. And he testifies in transparent honesty. And he says this, he says, My feet had almost slipped when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. He said, there's no pain in their death. They don't have any troubles in this life. It seems like everything comes to them so incredibly easy. He said, when I look at my own life, I see nothing but struggle. There's pain internally. There's frustration. It's three steps forward and two steps back. And he asked himself the satirical question. He said, listen, why in the world would I walk with God and give my life to faithfulness to him when it's this way with me? When them out there, they do nothing for God and yet everything is handed to them hand over fist. This is the struggle that Asaph was feeling when he wrote those words. But here's the conclusion that he brings it to. He says, this was the way I was feeling until I came into the sanctuary of God. Then, he said, I considered their end. Surely you did set them in slippery places. There's no stability of the ground that they stand upon and that their end will be final condemnation. And then he says, I was such a fool to think the way that I was thinking. I was a fool to think that to walk away from God, to have something on this earth, that somehow that would work out for me. He says, God, you are good. That's the conclusion that he comes to. How many of us have felt that same way? Listen, the end of the road that you and I are on is a glorious road. The glory that awaits us, the crown of life, the crown of glory, the crown that he gives, the life that awaits us in heaven, all of that is worth everything that it costs us in this world by way of poverty. To live my life in pursuit of earthly wealth is to labor and expend myself for something that I cannot enjoy and something that I cannot keep. The musicians can come as we close, but just a final thought on this vein. The musicians here, Mike, Caleb, you guys can come on up. Finish too early for them, you know. In Luke chapter 12, Jesus tells the story of a rich man, a godless rich man. And he said that this man looked around at everything he had. He looked back upon a life of his labor and everything that he had obtained. And he said, wow, I have done good for myself. I've laid up much goods, many years. He said to his soul, eat, drink, and be merry. He said, man, this is great. He said, but you know what? I could take all that I've got right here. I could put a little here and a little there. I could tear down these barns. I could build bigger barns. And I could make things even better for myself. And it says, the rich man, the next day, his soul was going to be required from him. And he said he's going to stand before God. And Jesus said, then, whose will those things be that that rich man laid up for himself? And God's analysis of that man is he said, you are a fool. You lived your life for that which was completely a waste. And so God says to us tonight here, he says, listen, two choices. We can live our lives as Christians in this world in a pursuit of earthly and worldly things or we can be content with what God gives us and we can live our lives with Him as the master passion of our life. 
and we can wait for him to do his good in our lives. It's his will to do good for our lives. I'll read Psalm 66 and then I'll close. Verses 8 through 12. Notice what David says. He says, Oh, bless our God, you people, and make the voice of his praise to be heard, which holds our soul in life and suffers not our feet to be moved. For you, O oh God, have proved us. You have tried us as silver is tried. You brought us into the net. You laid affliction upon our loins. You have caused men to ride over our heads. We went through fire and through water, but you brought us out into a wealthy place. And God's will and intent for our lives is not that we live impoverished, miserable, empty, lean lives, but that in our following of him, we take what comes and we allow him to give us what he wants us to have, soaring, right? Wings of eagles. Father, we thank you tonight, Lord, for your word. So many of us are affected, especially in this region of the world, by the dainties of rich men. And Lord, as we sit here in this quietness and we hear the testimony and we see into the windows of another world and hear the mind of God towards that which so often we're drawn after, oh God, forgive us. Your word says that that which is highly esteemed among men is so often an abomination before our God. And so, Lord, where we maybe have made the accumulation of things to be more than it should be in our lives, we ask that you'd forgive us and that you'd bring us, Lord, back into the place where we're dependent upon you for what you give in our lives. Help us, Lord. Father, help us to serve only you, that our reward would be tarnished in nothing. Thank you, Lord, for your care for us, your faithfulness to tell us the truth. And I pray tonight, Lord, for anyone here that maybe doesn't even know you yet. Come come in here, they don't know you, and that's all they've ever pursued after. And Even now, they feel the frustration of having lived that life, not obtaining or having obtained and yet not being satisfied. I pray that tonight, Lord, your gentle whisper would reach into their soul and that, Lord, you'd save them. I pray for the Christian that's here tonight, God, that's been distracted, drawn aside, that's lived for something other than you, Oh, that tonight, Lord, you would speak to us. That our hearts would be sanctified and brought back. Oh, help us, Father. Help us, Lord. As we close tonight, the altar is open. If the Lord in some way has reached into your heart, if there's an adjustment or a change that needs to be made, if maybe there's an alabaster box, this hidden precious thing inside that you know God is asking you to lay down and give to Him, but You're reluctant to do so. And tonight you just feel as though it's the time to lay that at the altar at the foot of the cross. As we close in song tonight, I just invite you in the quietness of the the moment and of your heart to come come on up. Spend a moment. Not drawn out. Spend your moment. Give it to the Lord. Lay your heart, your whole life before Him. And then just return back to your seat. It's just a way to respond. Nothing magic, but something absolutely real as we put feet to our faith. Let's stand together, shall we?